Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Jesus then steps in when I'm like, hey, this is, a, this is the best I can do. And he's like, okay, finally, you realize it. Now, let me show you what I can do. And he'll take us from the knee to the roof and beyond. Why? Because, because God room is a space where God's working. And until we get to the end of ourselves, it's really hard, even for God, to show us what he is wanting and able to do. In a new message entitled, Jesus, an example to follow, Pastor Sam tackles the second half of Mark chapter one. We take up in verse 21 and go through the end of the chapter. Herein, we see Jesus teaching and healing and doing so in a way that only the Son of God could do. We ended our last time together with Jesus calling his first disciples. And that takes place in chapter one, verses 16 through 20. It's important to note a couple things. First of all, this was not their first meeting. It almost appears like Jesus shows up out of nowhere and he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they're like, yes, master, we follow. No, Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. And Andrew was with another when John said, behold, the Lamb of God. He immediately goes and tells his brother Simon, who we know as Peter, we have found the Messiah. And we read, he took his brother to Jesus. He brought his brother to Jesus. You'll find all that in John 1, verse 40. And when Jesus sees Simon, he says, well, you are Simon, son of Jonah. You will be called Cephas. Cephas, well, is translated into the Greek, Peter. And, uh, and so Peter, of course, or Petros or Petra, and those mean a stone. So he's saying, basically, you're a, a reed and I'm gonna make you a stone. He first calls him what he will become, and then he makes him who he intends him to be. So Peter had met Jesus, he'd been renamed by Jesus, and now, along with his brother Andrew and James and John as well, Jesus calls them to leave all, to forsake all, and follow him, and they walk in obedience to that command. Verse 21, Jesus begins to disciple his disciples. It's Acts 1 where Luke shares the process. It's a simple one. These things Jesus began to do and teach. He discipled and mentored his disciples by, well, some spiritual, practical, biblical show and tell. He knew, as we should, that learning styles vary. Some do very well listening. The, the things just stick. We remember them. Pam's that kind of learner. She remembers almost everything she hears, so be careful what you say around her. But uh, I'm one who remembers more of what I read than what I hear. Then there are those who they're not really good at listening or, or uh, reading, but what they're good at is observing and hands-on interaction. So there are all these different learning styles. Jesus bridges the gap to each and every one by simply showing them, because if you're seeing it before your eyes, you don't need to hear about it or read about it. You are a living witness of what Jesus was able to do. 
Now, there are a group who will be opposed to Jesus. Many of you are aware. The Pharisees, these guys were experts in the, war, the word of God. Um, I remember my buddy Quentin saying, a, a spurt is just a drip under, under pressure. So an expert is a former drip under pressure. And, uh, and that's these guys. They, they knew so much about the word, but the word didn't transform them. They had the word, but it didn't get into them. So they were like the ones who write about swimming, but have never been in a pool or write about parenting, but don't have any kids. They write about things they've researched, but they have no experience in the things they're sharing. So we want to make sure we don't become experts we want to be real disciples of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. These guys knew the word, they had the word, but they didn't obey the word. So Jesus is going to show this small group, not just the four, ultimately the 12 and others who will adjoin and join themselves to them. Jesus shows them things that are impossible for anyone but him. Then he'll commission and command them to go and do the same. I like that. It's something that I remember reading in Franklin Graham's book, uh, Rebel with the Cause. He talked about this concept of God room. And God room begins when, well, what I'm capable of ends. And by the way, what I'm capable of, if it were on a scale from the floor to the ceiling, it goes about knee high. And, uh, but that's where I reach my greatest height. Jesus then steps in when I'm like, hey, this is, a, this is the best I can do. And he's like, okay, finally, you realize it. Now, let me show you what I can do. And he'll take us from the knee to the roof and beyond. Why? Because, because God room is a space where God's working. And until we get to the end of ourselves, it's really hard, even for God, to show us what he is wanting and able to do. So he'll commission them, he'll command them to go and do the same. And it requires them to learn a couple of things. First of all, to walk by faith, to walk in obedience, to be yielded to him and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, the impossible for us becomes possible because with God, all things are possible. Verses 21 through 45 provide five examples of Jesus' authority. His teaching, his freeing, his healing, his preaching, and his cleansing. So we read, first of all, then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. If you wanted to worship, if you wanted to offer sacrifice, if you wanted to participate in a great feast, you would go up to the temple in Jerusalem. But if you just wanted to get together with like-minded believers and study God's word, it would be the synagogue. Everywhere where there were 10 Jewish families, every town, every city, every village, 10 Jewish families required the building of a synagogue. And in the synagogue service, they basically focused on three things. They would, um, they would read the word. They would give an exposition of the word. And then there would be prayer. 
So they prayed together, they read the word, and there was an exposition of the word. The church actually commands or, you know, uh, combines these two, excuse me. Um, we combine these because we gather to, to worship as in, in, in a way that, well, they, they did there in the temple. The temple had music, the temple had a choir that had singing and all those things. In the synagogue, it was not really any of that. So the churches combined the things that would happen there in the temple services, apart from the sacrifice, because we lift Jesus up, who is our sacrifice. And then all the things that would have happened in the synagogue, the time for prayer, the time for uh, reading of the word, the time for an exposition of the word. Now, the, the ruler of the synagogue was responsible for the services. He collected offerings and he distributed alms to the poor. The minister of the synagogue, well, he would take out and store away those scrolls. And if you've walked through the Gospels before, you'll remember Jesus will go into synagogues often. They didn't have any permanent teacher. They had the ruler and they had the minister. And the minister, by the way, before we get to, to that part, uh, he did a lot more than just bring out and return the scrolls. He was responsible for the cleaning of the synagogue. He was responsible for the education of the children of the community. He blew a silver trumpet to announce the Sabbath day so people didn't have to keep track of what day of the week it was. But there was no, again, permanent preacher or teacher. So visiting scribes, the highest of them, the rabbis, that's what they call Jesus, rabbi or teacher. They would come into the synagogue. The ruler would recognize them. The scroll would be given to them in Isaiah. Uh, in uh, Nazareth, they give Jesus the scroll of Isaiah. He opens it and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he begins to lay out his whole mission statement. And at the end of that, he says, today, these things are fulfilled in your ears causing some serious amazement among the people. Well, we see the same thing here in this passage. And what surprised people is that Jesus, when he taught, didn't really follow the established pattern. The scribes who ordinarily would be teaching, they spent a lot of time referring to what former scribes had said. There was the, the written word of God. There was the the, there were um, commentaries on the written word of God, but then there was an oral tradition passed on from one scribe to another to another. So they would be together and, and they'd be saying, well, as scribe so-and-so or as rabbi so-and-so teaches. So, so they never took any personal responsibility for the things they were teaching. They were just reading and then talking about what other people had to say about the word of God. Now, Jesus comes on the scene and it says they were astonished. And why were they astonished? He taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus clarified things they were getting wrong. Jesus contradicted things they flat out didn't understand. He would say to those who heard him, you've heard it has been said, and he would go to the heart of, of what God wants us to know in order to treat one another the way he wants us to treat one another. You've heard it has been said, but I say unto you. They'd never heard anyone do that before. So 
as he's teaching with authority, we read the people were astonished. Why? Again, he is teaching with positive and absolute certainty. And in these days where there's so much confusion, where so many are, are challenging things that are absolutely obvious and clear to any clear thinking person, we need as believers, not just those who stand in, before music stands in churches, but, but those of us who are out in the community, and that's all of us, we need to be able, when somebody says something that's flat out wrong, say, wait a minute, listen. I don't want to show any disrespect here, but I, and I understand what you just said because I used to think something similar. I'm able to say that on most issues because I was an idiot for about 10 years before I came to Christ. And, uh, and so anyway, I, I, just to be able to say, wait a minute, that's not what the Bible says. You, you know those things you hear. The Lord helps those who help themselves. That's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches the Lord helps those who can't help themselves. He does for us what we can never do for ourselves. And so there are so many others, but you get the idea. Well, he goes then from astonishing them simply because he's teaching as if, well, he really understood and had authority in the word of God. Verse 23, our second example. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. Unclean spirit is a demonic spirit. He cried out, the spirit, not the man. He's speaking through the man to our Lord saying, let us alone, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Take note, he makes a plea, let us alone. He's not demanding it, he's asking it. And then he's saying, you know, it's us. There, there'll be another instance and we'll see it in the near future where there'll be someone who is, you know, demon possessed with multiple demons. He's just speaking for his gang, if you will. And he's saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? He recognizes him. So he makes a plea. He asks a question and then he recognizes him and he recognizes Jesus' authority over him and over them. Did you come to destroy us. In another instance, a demon will say, did you come to destroy us before the time? Why? Because they knew he had authority to simply bind them, to simply send them into destruction. And they know that day's gonna come. So it's a legitimate question. Are you here to destroy us? And then note what he says last. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Up to this point, remember the disciples have only walked with him a little while. Peter hasn't yet made his great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But for the demon to recognize Jesus and say, you are the Holy One of God, it's a pretty big deal. In the midst of that, Jesus, we read verse 25, rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. The be quiet is actually be muzzled. I like that. He'll use the same words though, talking to the stormy seas on the Sea of Galilee. He'll speak to the wind and waves saying, be muzzled. And the idea is come under control. Stop what you're doing. Stop the, the chaos you're causing. So he, he says in the midst of it, you know, be muzzled. 
And, and then having said so, the unclean spirit convulses him. And after it did, it cried out with a loud voice and he came out of him. The be quiet and be muzzled idea, it's an aorist imperative. What that means to us, the imperative says it's an absolute command. The aorist is it's once and for all. So he's saying, come out and don't come back. And that's how this all plays out. Then, even as they were astonished at his teaching, now they're amazed at his authority in the realm of the demonic. Then they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? They got in a little conversation. It, it, the setup in the synagogue was really good for this. There was, there was um, a, a place where you could sit on this side and a place where you could sit on this side, but the people basically faced one another, so it was easy to have a conversation if there was a pause from the one teaching, in this case, Jesus. For, for there to be a little discussion here and here. And, and so in the midst of that, they're amazed. They begin to discuss among themselves and ask, hey, what do you think is actually going on here? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Now, the next illustration might be the most comforting to some of us today because most of us suffer from various ailments. If you're young, they're, you know, they're fewer ordinarily. As you age, they intensify. There are many more. But there are two extremes that can plague us. First, thinking that there are things that are beyond our Lord. You know, it's one thing when you go in and, and they say, man, you're going to have to have that root canal. I'm no fan of that. But it's another thing when you go in and the diagnosis is cancer. And we need to know there's nothing too hard for our Lord. There's nothing that he can't do. There's nothing that's impossible for him. So we don't want to think, well, man, this is too big for the Lord. We also don't want to err going the other direction, thinking that some things may be below him. This isn't that serious. I shouldn't bother the Lord with it. That makes no sense to me. That's like, you know, you have, you have a nagging pain. You run into your doctor and, and, and you're like, well, I don't really want to bother you. That's what he does. That's his ministry, if you will. So, so track with me on this, and some of you hopefully will find some comfort in it. Verse 29 says, Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother, that would be his mother-in-law, right? Lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and immediately the fever left her and she served them. Note first her response to the mercy shown her and then we'll walk through a few of the implications. As soon as she was healed by the Lord, she served them. It makes total sense. And by the way, if we want to serve our Lord, we can only do that by serving one another and the people around us. He doesn't need anything from us except our obedience and our love for him and one another. Demonstrated practically because he has everything he needs except all the people he died for. 
So our witness in the world is a huge thing for him. The second lesson can be life-changing. There's no need too great, again, and no need too small to bring to our Lord. They'll bring people to Jesus, we'll read of it in a minute, with every possible kind of infirmity. And he was able to heal them. But here it sounds like not that great a deal. Dr. Luke, he always adds essential information if it involves some kind of sickness. He said that she had a very high fever, a great fever, a mega fever, if you will. And that's the actual word, mega. It was a high fever, so that's a dangerous thing. You're aware of that. It's not like 100, it's, you know, who knows, but a high fever. And it said when Jesus touched her, he also rebuked the fever. Now, I don't fully understand rebuking a fever, but I know that's what Jesus did. And the fever immediately left her and she immediately served them. So here's what I learned. And we're going to see it again and again and again. Hopefully I'll remember to bring it to your attention again. But you'll see it and hopefully you'll, you'll remember yourself. You bring the problem to Jesus. You trust him to do what's best. Now, if you come up as instructed, if you're suffering and it says call for the elders of the church so they can lay hands on you and anoint you with oil and pray for you and the prayer of faith will save the sick. Listen, don't go home and call us. You're here. Come forward at the end. We'll gather and we in obedience to his command and you in obedience command will find out what the Lord wants to do. But you need to know that we always pray, not our will, but yours be done. Sometimes people don't want that part of the prayer. They're like, no, I just want him to do what I need him to do. Don't pray that. But listen, Paul, in the book of Acts, he's going through a, a serious time, and, and, uh, and he's had this glorious revelation of the Lord. And he says, lest I be exalted above measure, lest, lest I start thinking too much of myself because I've seen things no one has seen. He said he saw things that weren't lawful to even share. And he said the Lord gave him a thorn in the flesh, a, a buffet spiritually. And, and he kind of got tired of that. And so he prays three different times that the Lord would, would relieve his suffering, would relieve his pain. I recall, and you will as well, our Lord prays three times. If it's possible for us to be saved any other way, let this cup pass. So Paul prays three times that God would relieve his suffering. And here's God's answer to Paul. And this might be God's answer to some of you today. And if it is, you need to hear it. You need to not just accept it. You need to embrace it. He said to me, this is from 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul's response, I most gladly boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasures in infirmities and in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And what he means by that last statement, when I'm weak in myself, I'm strong in him. His strength made perfect in my weakness. It does what it's meant to do. It accomplishes its goal. 
again, when I'm at the end of my resources and God steps in, and sometimes he just takes care of the problem just as we're hoping and praying he will. And other times we're gonna hear these same words, my grace is sufficient. Either way, we wanna accept what the Lord has for and says to us. In our afflictions and trials, God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. But before that happens, these same trials bring us to a point where we will call out to him. According to Psalm 107, we're like those who go to sea, and God brings about a storm that tosses our ship to and fro. And when we reach our wit's end, that's when we cry out to the Lord, and he brings us out of our distresses. You see, God not only allows the storm, he brings it, because that is where we need to be, at our wit's end because our wits are not sufficient to accomplish much. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.